Good morning. How are we doing? Great to, great to be with you guys again. Uh, uh, as Patrick said, we are so excited. I know we've said that a lot, but we just are so pumped to uh, get the family back together. Again, if you missed that email that we sent out to you, please contact our front office and ask them to resend it or look in your junk mail. Maybe it got put there, but guys, we are so excited. We are continuing our ser- series today. This is part five. Uh, of the God of all grace through the book of 1 Peter. And today's message title is Prepared for Action. Prepared for Action, because that is exactly what Peter is going to help us to do. Now, every single song that Daniel picked today is really the sermon that I'm giving you this morning. So uh, we're going to just dive right in here. 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 10 and following. Uh, the day two hijacked jetliners were flown by terrorists into the Twin Towers, was an unforgettable moment uh, for those of us who watched it by TV, and I'm sure for those of us, for those who were there at the time. It felt, here's what it felt like. For those of you who are not old enough to remember the two towers coming down uh, on 9-11, here's what it felt like. For the next few days and maybe the next couple of weeks, it felt like we as a nation had been sucker punched in the face. That's what it felt like. Everybody would, would talk about that, how we just felt so um, taken off guard, right? And I feel like this pandemic situation that we have been in over the last three months has evoked that same feeling where we feel like this thing just came on us so hard and so fast. And before we knew it, this little microscopic bug had taken down our economy and disrupted and upended our lives. And nobody, except for a few pandemic nerds who study these things, nobody anticipated this. Nobody expected this, right? And at times, personally, you and I experience, we may experience a personal 9-11, something that just comes on us suddenly, it catches us unaware, and it could have been a spouse who was discovered in in an affair and then announces divorce. It could be the sudden and unexpected death or illness of a loved one. It could be the daily fight to keep a business, a marriage, or a dream alive. If you've ever felt ambushed, if you've ever felt sucker punched by the unexpected, I think today's message is going to help you, so hang in there. And you probably had a similar thought that I had recently, which was, I know for me, the first questions that came to my mind was, uh, what could I have done differently? What could I have done differently? Um, I was tormented by that question, actually. When Carrie was diagnosed with stage three breast cancer and things, I don't know, I just, my mind went everywhere. And one of the places that it went was, uh, what could I have done differently? Like, could I have, like, fed her a better diet? Or, I mean, I had crazy thoughts. If I shared with you all of the things that I thought I could have done to change the situation before it happened to us, I would, I, it's just almost embarrassing to share that. But here's what I want you to know. As human beings, you and I, you and I have the benefit of hindsight. That's a gift. That's a gift from God. You and I have the benefit of hindsight. What we don't have is we don't have the benefit of omniscience. We don't have all the information. And you didn't have all the information you had back then that you do today. 
And so with enough time and enough disciplined thinking, rationality is restored, right? So enough time and disciplined thinking, my rational mind comes back to me and I realize, I come to terms with the fact, okay, I, I didn't know back then what I knew now and there's no way I could have zigged and not zagged and had this happen. And, and then we start asking another question. So the second question I ask myself in trauma, in turmoil is this, why wasn't I more prepared? Like, why? How come I don't feel ready for this? People would say to me, oh, you're, you and Carrie, your faith is so strong. And I'm telling you, I would say a very sincere appreciation for everyone who says that to me. Man, you guys, someone just said to me recently, you guys are just the, the perfect picture of faith. No, no, I'm not. I can't tell you how many times I second-guess myself, how many times I second-guess God, I can't tell you how many times I, find, I found myself wondering why am I not strong enough to face this new reality? How come I wasn't more prepared? And then with enough time and enough self-discipline thought, rationality is restored. And then I ask the third question, and this one is normal. How can I be more ready next time, right? Like how, how do I keep from being caught so unaware next time. And I want to encourage you today and I want to challenge you. I want to give you an encouragement and I want to give you a challenge. And the encouragement is this. You can't be all-knowing. You're not omniscient. So stop holding yourself to that standard. Stop it. That's my official, professional, pastoral advice. Stop it. Just don't hold yourself to a standard that God doesn't hold you to. He doesn't hold you to the standard of being all-knowing. There is only one who is. So I want to encourage you. Don't hold yourself to that standard. Don't torture yourself with that. And then the challenge is this. When it comes to things we can change, situations that aren't inevitable, things we can prepare for, we can be better prepared. And Peter is going to help us with this. I want to tell you this. The Christian life is in some sense, in some sense, it's a state of constant response to situations that we can't or couldn't change. I'll say that again. The Christian life is in some sense a state of constant response to situations that we can't or we couldn't foresee. And it's also a state of constant readiness planning for situations we can change and we can anticipate. So on the one hand, we're constantly coming to grips with the fact that there are things that come to our doorstep that we could not have prepared for. And on the other hand, there are times when we say, yes, I want to plan. I want to be ready for what's coming next. And Peter is going to help us with this today. Here's the one thing you can guarantee. Here's the one thing you can bet on. The devil. Let's stop right there. Do you know that the devil is real? I, I know that our culture is increasingly lurching in the direction of anti-supernaturalism, of anti-supernatural bias. But I'm telling you, if you are a Christian and you take the New Testament seriously, the devil was there in the wilderness to tempt the Son of God to give up his kingdom. The devil, Peter says, is prowling about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. His goal is to devour your life. And the devil will do everything within his power to tempt you in any and every situation. So situations that come into your life you didn't plan for, you couldn't plan for. And situations that come into your life that you did plan for or you could be ready for, his main goal in your life is to make you more godless and to make you more Christless. 
to make you as unchristlike and ungodly as he possibly can. And that is what Peter is going to help us be ready for today. 1 Peter 1, 13 through 21, here's, here's what Peter says. He says, therefore, with your minds ready for action, the sober-minded, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former, former ignorance, but as the, the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. And if you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's work, you are to conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living here as strangers, as sojourners. For you know that, that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold or money, or bitcoins, right? But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb, praise God. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. The first thing that Peter wants to tell us is number one, be ready. Be ready, says in verse 13. Therefore, with your minds ready for action. Now, I got to tell you what the original Greek says. The original Greek says, gird up the loins of your minds. Isn't that a very strange idiom? Yes, it is. Because in the first century, what you had to understand is they used idioms the same way you and I do, uh, things that don't have literal application, but, but point to a literal reference. I'll give you an example. So uh, what the fisherman used to do is he, would, he was dressed in, essentially you could find Peter or James or John or Andrew. These guys, here's what they would look like. They would be wearing a, a, a typical turban. That's called a sudarin. And the Jewish male wore the sudarin or the turban. And then they would wear an outer coat. And it's translated in your Bible sometime as cloak, right? Jesus, if somebody... Uh, you know, ask for your cloak, give them your tunic as well, which is a very embarrassing scene. Okay, so uh, that word is cloak. That's the outer coat, right? And then uh, they had what's called a stole. And the stole is, it's not an undergarment, but it's really sort of their shirt and their trousers. It's just one robe that went down to their knees. For men, it went down to the knees. For women, it went down to the ankles. And what a guy like Peter would do if he was a craftsman or a trademan uh, he would, if he had to get into action, like if he had to go fishing, if he had to wade into the water and throw a trammel net out into the water to catch some fish, what he would do is reach between his legs and grab the back of that stole, pull it up between his legs, and it had two cords. They usually had two cords sewed on the back of it, and then they would tie those cords to their sash. And this would create essentially what to us would look like just a man diaper. Right? It just... But it was their way of creating like a pair of shorts. And this was called girding up your loins, right? And so when Peter says, gird up the loins of your mind, your translation will probably say, prepare your minds. Prepare your minds, because that's what it meant. it meant. It means prepare to move. Prepare for action. And so, and so if you're a developer and you're going to build buildings in California... You got to build those buildings in preparation for an eventual seismic event. You got to prepare. 
If you're a homeowner in Mississippi, which is the the state where the most tornadoes happen, the most tornado-prone state in the Union, or Illinois, which is second, or Alabama, or Texas, then you've got to build your house in anticipation that that a weather event is going to disrupt your life. If you live in southeastern Florida, as some of my family do, you've got to expect that on occasion a hurricane is going to threaten to lift your roof off your house. And if you're a Christian living in a world that is becoming increasingly hostile to the good news of salvation in Christ, you've got to anticipate, you've got to be ready for the fact that they are going to resist you. They are going to resist us. Now, Peter says, prepare your minds for action. What action? What action? Trials of various kinds. Trials of various kinds that will test your belief in the goodness of God. This is the core of this message right here in Peter. He says it's going, the kind of action you're going to face are the trials of various kinds, the temptations, the tests that come into our lives, and they tempt us to doubt the goodness of God. I'm going to show you why that is so important. So he says, be ready. How? Prepare your minds. Prepare your minds. This is how you get ready. This involves discipline and devotional thinking. I'll say it again. Preparing your minds involves discipline and devotional thinking. What am I talking about here? This is cultivating the life of the Christian mind. It's cultivating the life of the Christian mind. Years ago, I bought a Mac computer. And it was the first generation of Mac computers where you could actually install on the computer hard drive, you can install two operating systems, the Mac OS and the Windows OS. And I remember I have this friend, his name is Steve. He was my pastor at the time, and, and he heard that I got this thing, and I was like, man, it's cool. He goes, no, it's not. Just throw the Windows part away. He was such a Mac fanatic. And I said, no, no, I want to run Microsoft Word and Microsoft Excel. I want to run those programs. And here's what you had to do in order to run, to toggle between those two operating systems that were in the same machine. You had to go in and decide. You had to click a button and decide how much of your hard drive you were going to partition, uh, partition or devote to which operating system? Well, most of my programs were Mac programs. So most of my operating system was devoted, 80% of it was devoted to the Mac OS, and then when I would try to toggle over to the Windows system and run a program in it, it would crash. It never worked right. And the same is true for the Christian life. You and I have two operating systems inhabiting the same machine, right? And that is the life of the reborn spirit, this new life in Christ. Paul says this, you are a new creation in Christ Jesus. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. Except that sinful nature, that other operating system that you came with still lives in you. It still inhabits. And these two operating systems are warring against each other. And what you and I do when we prepare our minds, when we cultivate the life of the Christian mind, is we intentionally partition. We devote our mental, spiritual, and physical energy, the energy of our life, we devote it to this reborn operating system. So the other one doesn't take over and crash us, right? The more of your heart and the more of your mind that you devote to God's word and you devote to the Christian life. That's how the Christian prepares his mind. He also says, think soberly. Think soberly. So we prepare our minds and we, one of the ways we do that is to just think soberly. Now let me ask you a question. This analogy implies what? It implies a contrast. 
it implies that there is a way to actually think in, in, in terms of not being sober. Now, if you've ever been drunk, or if you've ever been, <laughs> Daniel's like, uh, I think I have, yeah, I think I know what that's like. Um, if you've ever been sloshed out of your mind, or if, you, or if you were raised around people who were just epic drunkards, then you know what the drunk mind looks like. A drunk mind is what? Not clear. <laughs> okay, not clear. The substance is giving that drunk mind a wildly inflated estimation of their capacities and abilities. <laughs> if you've ever seen a drunk fight in a bar, which I have, then you know uh, they have a wildly inflated estimation of their capacities and abilities. Excessive drink leads to impulsive behavior, incoherent speech, memory loss, and slow reflexes and reaction time. There is nothing more embarrassing or useless or dangerous or vulnerable as a drunk mind. That person is exactly not the person you want driving your car, flying your plane, or standing next to you in battle. Places where senses have to be on high alert, where thinking has to be exceptionally clear, where reflexes have to be automatic and effortless because lives are on the line. And what Peter says is this, is he says, don't be drunk in your thinking. Be disciplined and be devoted. Devote, partition your hard drive, as much of it as you possibly can, to the devotion of his word and to the Lord. See, the Christian mind must be prepared for it the inevitability of challenges to our faith. Those things will come. And we must not let anything of the world have undue influence or sway on the way that we think, right? Here's what I want you to know is the devil's scheme. The devil's scheme is this. Not at first to convince you to give up your faith in God. So his scheme is not to convince you at first that God doesn't exist. I mean, look at the debates between philosopher, Christian philosopher William Lane Craig. You can YouTube him on uh, later. You can search for him on YouTube. Uh, philosopher William Lane Craig is a Christian philosopher and apologist. And he's a very credentialed person. He has a couple of doctorates from very prestigious European universities. He doesn't debate armchair philosophers. He only debates the best of the best. He's always looking for that philosopher or that scientist in a university system who is considered the top of their field. He wants to debate that guy. And he does. And if you watch those debates, here's what you'll see. My homie, William Lane Craig, trounces them. And he's been doing it for 25, 30 years. And he's been doing it with the same five or six arguments. I mean, it's the same five or six arguments. You would think they would take the time to actually look them up and figure out a response to them, but they can't. And here's what they do. The top, the best the world has to offer, the atheist comes to the debate, and they ne almost never try to debate the non-existence or existence of God. They don't try to offer any evidence or arguments that God doesn't exist. Here's what they do. Nine times out of ten, they appeal to evil and suffering. And they're not arguing against the existence of God. What are they arguing against? The goodness of God. And, and ultimately, they want to prove that God can't exist because a good God can't exist. And this strikes me as exactly the scenario that we see in the garden with Adam and Eve. I mean, Satan's temptation is not, he is not hanging out in the tree, the forbidden tree, with the fruit. And he doesn't say, hey, Adam, Eve, kids, psst, come over here. Uh, have you seen God? Because I don't see him right now. You know what? I bet you God doesn't exist. 
He doesn't say that because they would have laughed him out of the garden. They would have turned around and walked away. But here's what he does. He says, hey, guys, come here. Um, Look at this fruit. Look how good this fruit looks. And they go, yeah, you're totally right. That looks so delicious. That looks good, pleasing to the eye for food, right? And then he says, I know it is. Did God really say you'll die if you eat it? Now he's questioning God's word. That's his second ploy. So he gets your attention with something that does look very pleasurable to you. And then he questions God's word. Here's the, here's the innuendo. Here's the insinuation. The insinuation is this. This is good. God says it's off limits. God's not good. Because God doesn't want you to have something that you really, really desire and something that clearly, clearly would be good for you. You see, he doesn't want to make you an atheist. He doesn't have to make you an atheist. He could just make you godless. He could just make you a person who begins to question, oh, I don't think God has my best interests at heart. And we must be prepared by devoting and partitioning our resources, our mental energies, our spiritual, our physical energies to God's truth and his values in the word and Christian community. And we must be prepared with sober minds for the action and activity that the devil seeks to call God's word into question and call his goodness into question. Number two, be holy. So he says, be ready, be holy. Verses 14 and 16, he says, as as obedient children. There's an idea. Uh, There's a novel idea. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in your conduct. You are to reflect his character, to reflect his holy nature. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Hear me well. Satan's goal is not to make you an atheist, not right away. He doesn't have to make you an atheist to destroy your life. All he has to do is make you godless. I'll say it again. He doesn't have to make you an atheist, a full-on atheist, card-carrying atheist. All he has to do is make you godless. All he has to do is to conform you to a pattern that is not like God. To conform you to a pattern that is not like God. Peter says, do not be conformed to the evil desires. Those illicit desires. Don't let the pattern of your life be formed after covetous desire. What is covetousness? What is that? Covetous desire is wanting anything that God says is off limits. It's the illicit desire to have, to be, and to do what God says. You cannot have that. You cannot be that. You cannot do that. Okay, it's the illicit desire to have, to be, to do what God says. You can't have that. You can't be that. You can't do that. Now, God has given us a great panoply, variety, a tremendous variety of all that he's given us. When he gave Adam and Eve three laws, he gave them three laws. The first one was a vocational law. He said, this is what you are. And this is what you're to be doing in the world, right? That's a vocational law. Then he gave them a volitional law. He said, of all of the trees of the field, of all the plants, of all the animals, you are free to eat. So that's a volitional law. They were free to do in God's realm and in his garden, in this biosphere that had been created for them, whatever they wanted to do within the bounds God had given them. And then the third law was a prohibitive one. And that is the law that says, God says, of all this you can have, but you can't have that. That's the one thing that I'm telling you is off limits. And the essence of coveting, the essence of sin really, is to desire the thing that God says, nope, that's off limits, you can't have that. Cheating relationships always start with the temptation to have one tree more. To have one more thing than God says you can have 
this, you can have this woman, you can go out there in the world before you're married, and there's a lot of fish in the sea. I mean, there's a lot of people you can date, you can swipe right, you can date, and God has given you great variety to choose from, so long as it works out for the other person. But when you get married, God says, okay, every other choice is now delimited. You can't have, you can't have those other people. But cheating relationships start with a temptation to want more, more than what God has given you. Substance addiction is always the result of someone desiring excess, not less. Have you ever met anyone who's addicted to a substance that says, I really like to control my appetites? No. It's always a desire for more. Then God says living in moderation is healthy or living with a clear mind is healthy. And when God says you are free to eat and partake of the trees of the field, of the garden, except you can't have that one, and you and I say, nope, I want to have that, I want to be that, I want to do that. That is rebellion and that is just the sin of covetousness and that is at the root, at the heart of every sin, every sin we face. Now, as an illustration of this, I experienced this the other day. So there is a closet in my bedroom it's a little closet, and uh, that is a closet where Carrie keeps the bag of um, s'mores items. And the bag of s'mores items has Hershey bars, like, you know, little packs of Hershey bars. It has uh, marshmallows and, and little graham crackers, and that is off limits. And everybody knows about three or four times in the backyard every summer, uh, she's going to break that bag out and we're going to have s'mores over the fire. And about three times a summer, something like that. And uh, I know where the bag is. So the other day, I got into the closet for something else, and I saw it. Now, the bag is just eye level. And it's covered with a little baby blanket. I don't know why there's a baby. I think the baby blanket is her way of saying, you know this is off limits. <laughs> I put an angel here with a flaming sword. You know <laughs> this thing is off limits. So this, so this is funny, man. Uh, Carly was sitting on my bed, and uh, Carrie gets up in the morning, she makes the bed all up, and Carly's sitting on the bed on her computer doing homework, and I open it up, and I flip back that baby blanket, and she goes, you better not, <laughs> and I go, and so I reach there, she goes, oh, I'm going to tell mommy, and she is the snitch of our family, she will tell on you, right, but I had a way, so I took out a candy bar, and I opened it up, she goes, oh, I'm going to tell mommy, and then I broke it in half, and I handed her half of it, and she goes, well, maybe I won't tell mommy. And she took it and ate it because she saw that it was good for food. It was pleasing to the eye. And once, and I was the devil, man. Like, once I had her in on this deal, and she was complicit with the crime, I knew she would not tell mom because she wanted more candy bars. So the rest of that week, we got in that closet, and Carly and I ate, like, every can- almost every candy bar in that packet. I think there was just one left in there. And then we're in there. Carrie, we're in there at the end of the week. Carrie opens the door. She sees that the, that the blanket has been pushed back. She takes the package out and goes, who told you you could eat of this? And, and I am not kidding you. The Lord in heaven is my witness. Carly and I both pointed at each other and went, she did it, he did it. It was her fault. And it was in that moment that I realized we have just played out the scene in the garden. 
where we have been caught, we broke the law, we ate the thing that was forbidden in the closet, and now we're blame shifting, like Adam saying, this woman that you gave me, and then the woman saying, this serpent that you put in the garden, and then the serpent saying, you got me, yeah, it's me. And so we are sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. And you and I have these two operating systems. We live with both a redeemed nature that is a new creation in Christ Jesus. And in our heart, we want to follow Jesus and love Jesus and serve him and get in his word. But there's this other nature in us that wants to, that sins and wants to covet and wants to have the thing that's in the closet, the tree, just one tree more. And if Satan can tempt us to successfully doubt the goodness of God, to say, you know what? It's not good to have such a good thing that's off limits to me. If he can do that, even in the face of horrendous calamity, if he can get you to doubt God's word and his commands and the goodness of God, the godly pattern that he's called us to conform to, he's got you. He's got you. But it's not just the illicit off-limits desire of former uh, stuff that we used to, uh, we used to chase after. He, he says here, he said it was ignorant. You know, like we had this idea. We thought that we were just these enlightened, erudite people. Like, and, and he says, nope, you were ignoramuses. When you chased after, after all that and then you justified it, you, you warranted the chase after that by your philosophy of life, you were an ignorant person thinking ourselves to be wise, thinking ourselves to be educated, thinking ourselves to be erudite. Spiritually, we were a bunch of backwoods, ignorant yokels. That's the truth. And we mistook our ignorance for enlightenment. We mistook our lustful passions for self-actualization, the project of self-actualization. Has anyone ever told you that? No. That's not your project. Your project is to be conformed to the pattern of godliness. And Peter says, that's the way you used to be. Don't go back to that. He says, don't go back to that sappy cultural pablum. It's baby food. Two problems here. You and I are prone, in our sinful nature, we are prone to covet what we don't have, and we are prone to worship that which is not God. Look at what he says. He says, if you appeal to the Father, who judges impartially according to each one's work, you are to conduct yourselves in reverence. There's worship language during your time as living as strangers and sojourners in this world. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty, notice he calls it just an empty way of life. It was just pablum, it was just emptiness. Empty way of life inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. So the two greatest challenges we face to be conformed to the pattern of godliness, to be made holy like he is holy, is covetousness, but also false worship. Now, I don't use the word idolatry the way a lot of people use it. I, I mean, I used to do this, but honestly, the New Testament does not use the word idolatry the way a lot of times we do in our, in our culture. If somebody has an eating problem, you know, like I have a candy bar problem, um, then we say, oh, that candy bar has really become your idol. No, it's not. That can't, I'm not worshiping the candy bar, right? So there's a difference between coveting what you can't have, which most of the time is our problem, and idolatry. Idolatry is a full-blown system now, right? So false worship is anything that is not God, that is not God, not God, that would demand the same allegiance, honor, and attention that you would give God or that is rightfully God's alone right? That's false worship. So worship means to ascribe what? The worth and the value that is due the creator. 
And anytime we ascribe the worth and the value and the honor and the attention and the authority that is due exclusively to God, to something else, we are worshiping something else. Now, that is idolatry. Why is God the only one worthy of our worship? Here's why. Because God is the greatest conceivable good. Notice here, he says, we appeal to the Father. We appeal to the Father. Jesus started his prayer that he taught the disciples out in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, pray like this. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I love the King James Version. It's so beautiful. Holy is your, your name is to be hallowed, sacrosanct. Your name is holy, and he's a holy father. God is the greatest conceivable good. If you could think of a more good than God, that would be God. God is the greatest conceivable good. He's a good father. He is the father of heavenly lights who gives us good things. And secondly, he's worthy of our worship because Peter says he's perfectly just. He's the God. He's our father. We appeal to him who judges perfectly who judges impartially between men, isn't it good to know? Isn't it comforting to know that we serve a God who is in charge of everything and whatever injustice we think is going on in the world today, ultimately, the perpetrators of those injustices will be accountable and culpable to an almighty sovereign God. They will be. You and I serve a God who isn't going to let it slide. You and I serve a God who, are, who is going to reward the faith-filled. Those people who have faith in Christ alone for salvation. He is going to reward us, and he is going to judge injustice. God is perfectly, perfectly impartial, and we can trust that, and he's worthy of our worship because of that. And then because God is generous beyond measure. Look at what, he's, look at what he says in the text that God gives us. God doesn't give us... God could say, hey, um, on Christmas morning, I'm just going to give you a giant bag of gold. Wouldn't that be great? How many of you kids would like a giant bag of gold? Would you like a giant? I would. I, how many of you folks at home would like for me to say, hey, Christmas morning, look out, because on your doorstep, UPS is going to drop off a giant bag of gold. That would be great. That would change your life. Winning the lottery, sure, that would be great. That would be change your life. But God says this, I'm more generous than that. I'm more generous than that because I gave you something that doesn't perish like silver or gold. I gave you the precious, spotless lamb of God, the son of God from eternity. How generous, how much more generous could God be than the fact that he gives us Jesus Christ as our atoning sacrifice and then along with Christ, he gives us all things. He says the world is yours you, the meek, shall inherit the earth. Hallelujah. We serve a God. We serve a God who is just perfectly good, a good father, perfectly just, and a God who is generous beyond imagination. And if we're going to prepare our minds for action and be prepared for the devil's schemes that he wants, to, these, these rackets that he wants to run in our lives, we've got to be holy as God is holy. We've got to be conformed to the pattern of holiness in the word. So here are the takeaways today. The first one is this, preparing the calm. So if you're going to be prepared, prepare when it's calm. One of my favorite stories in the whole Bible is, is King Asa. It's in 2 Chronicles 14, 5 through 7. There's, a, there's a, also a story of this in, in, I think, 1 or 2 Kings. And Asa is a king, and he is in a place in his life, and Israel's in a place where they have relative peace. Here's what the text says, because the land of Israel experienced peace. That word is shalom. Asa built fortified cities in Judah. 
No one made war with him in those days because the Lord gave him rest. That word is Shabbat, where we get the word Sabbath. So he said to the people in Judah, let's, let's build some cities, man. Let's build these cities and surround them with walls and towers and with doors and bars. It's going to be great. The land is still ours because we sought, that word sought is the word derash. We sought the Lord our God. We sought derash, him, and gave, he gave us rest. He gave us Shabbat on every side, so they built and succeeded. They had three things in the time of peace. They had three things in the time of respite in a season where they didn't have war. They had these three things. Shalom, they had peace. They had the absence and of the, or the cessation of conflict. And sometimes you need seasons of peace. And they had Shabbat. They had rest. That means a cessation from toil, from the onerous burden of toil. And sometimes you just need a respite. Sometimes you just need Shalom and you need Shabbat. But during this time of peace and during this time of rest, they had Derash. They were seekers. They sought the Lord. The worst thing you could do in a time when if God gives you peace on all sides is to forget the Lord. It's to say, yeah, I'll, I'll pray when things get hard again. I'll throw another Hail Mary pass toward heaven when things get rough again. No, you seek the Lord when all is good because here's why, here's why. Number two, things are going south. <laughs> Eventually, it's gonna go south. And when it goes south, build, don't bail. When the Shabbat hits the fan, it's time to build. And you keep building and you don't bail. <laughs> One of my favorite stories in the Bible is the story, I read it often, probably a couple times a year, is the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. I love this story. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 10. And so the people are there. And at the beginning, they're, they're returned from exile. They are rebuilding the city walls. They're commissioned to rebuild the domiciles in the walls. They're commissioned to rebuild all the, the, the towns, uh, houses, and the, and the temple. And so they're just... So that's just what I hear in my mind when I read the first part of the story. They are so excited. They're pumped. They're back. They're in their land. They're rebuilding. And then things go horribly wrong. So this guy named Sanballat shows up. And he starts taunting them. And they're pressed in on every side. And there's a point where they are building this wall where the people are so exhausted. All they think about is quitting every day. And here's what... Verse 10 in chapter 4 of Nehemiah says, it says, the strength of those who bear this burden is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we're not able to rebuild this wall. And Nehemiah has to get up and say, hey, here's the deal. This is going to get harder before it gets better. Keep building. Build, don't bail on this project because God has called us to do this for our posterity. God has called us to do this for the people who will follow us. Build when it goes south. Don't bail on this because this is what God is doing in our midst. God is so faithful. And here's the third takeaway, number three, critical. When sky clears, as it will, you start all over again. Repeat steps one and two. Because here's what's going to happen. God is going to give you some clear skies, and God is going to give you Shabbat, and he's going to give you Shalom, and, he, and in the midst of that, you're going to practice Darash. You're going to seek the Lord. You'll, he'll be the Lord that was sought by his people, and that will prepare you and gear you up to be ready, to be ready when the stuff goes south again, because this is the pattern of the Christian life. This is the cycle. This is the rhythm of it. Can I pray with you? Let's pray, guys. God, thank you so much for uh, just such an encouraging, amazing word in this text, this, this, uh, this paragraph 
is just so powerful. It ministers to us. But if you're listening to me right now by television or by phone or on your computer or on your iPad, here's what I want you to do. If you are an atheist and you don't know God, or maybe you say, man, I have a theory about the supreme being, but the truth is, is my life is not atheistic. It's just Godless. I don't live. I don't look anything like God, right? And you want to become a believer this morning? It's very simple. It's very simple. You confess what is true. You confess the fact that you're a sinner and you are far from God and you live a Christless life, but you also are headed for a Christless eternity, an eternity without Christ. And I guarantee you there's nothing, nothing worse than that. And so will you just admit what is true? That you have sinned, fallen short of God's glorious standard. And there is only one person who has ever met that standard and one person who paid the price for our sin. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. Will you repent and put your trust and put your faith in him alone? You have a choice today. You have a choice. You can choose him or choose the empty way of life that you're in right now. Will you choose Jesus? Will you just choose Jesus? Will you repent of your sin? Will you put your faith in him, him alone for salvation? And you will be saved. And you may be sitting there and, and maybe you just feel like, oh man, I am a Christian. I believe all this. I even read the Bible sometimes, but man, I just need to be ready. I'm not ready. And, and I feel challenged this morning and I want to commit myself this morning to being prepared in times of seasons of calm and seasons of peace and rest. And I want to seek the Lord and I commit myself to doing that. I prepare my mind in his word and in Christian community and in prayer. Will you commit to doing that right now? And maybe, you're in, maybe you are in the midst of one of the greatest trials you've ever faced in your life. And my encouragement to you, you make the commitment right now. I'm not going to bail on this. I'm not going to bail. I'm going to keep walking with Jesus. I'm going to put one foot in front of the other, and I'm going to trust God, and I'm going to build this thing he's called me to build, and God is going to work it out. He's going to deliver you. In Jesus' name, amen. Great to see you guys. Love you. Can't wait for June. We'll see you then. Let us know if you have any questions. Love you.